due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Remember, every secret has a price. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, we're joined by Ben West, and we take a look at economic espionage, past, present, and future. Ben is a senior global security analyst from Stratfor, which is a rain company. On this episode, we take a brief look at the economic espionage activities conducted by the Chinese government. With the recent rise in hate crimes targeting Asian communities in the US, UK and Europe, I just wanted to add before this interview that no one should discriminate against anyone of Asian appearance because of the actions or perceived actions of the Chinese government. In all honesty, no one should pass any judgment against any stranger based on their ethnic appearance. It really is the height of ignorance to do so, and it should not be tolerated. I say this as I am hyper-aware that when discussing espionage, we are typically talking about the actions of one state against another, and it is very easy to otherize people if we're not careful. No individual bears the responsibility of any government, and no individual should be targeted because of the actions of any government. Now, I know all of you would never do such a thing, but I do not know how this podcast is shared and to whom, so even though I probably don't need to say something, I feel like I would be irresponsible if I didn't. So thank you very much, everybody. I just wanted to get that off my chest before this episode begins. I think Ben and I have a fantastic discussion, and I hope you enjoy it. So thank you very much. Take care. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Chris. Thank you. It's great to have you on. So for the benefit of the listeners, please can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. So I am a global security analyst for Stratfor, yep. a rain company. Um, I've been with Stratfor for uh, about 14 years now. And... Uh, you know, we cover as a, as a security analyst. Um, I cover everything ranging from organized criminal activity, terrorism, um, natural disasters. But I think something that kind of brings it all together is uh, intelligence. That's that's yes. kind of what we deal in. And so, um, matters of intelligence and uh, as a subset of that, espionage have always been near and dear to my to, uh, near and dear to my heart. And something that we always come back to, uh, either whether it's in our analysis or briefing clients, um, the practice of intelligence is just kind of core of of what we do. Yeah, and it's a great, fun enough, I've always found intelligence and looking at it is a great way to kind of understand both history and just the way the world works sometimes. Yes, and yeah, it's, it's exactly, it's a tool um, for looking at the past, the the present, or in our case, you know, we try to also look into the future and just kind of, kind of anticipate um, what's going to be happening years or decades down the road. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you've written a fantastic series of reports for Stratfor on economic espionage from past, present to future. Before we go through your report, I have a couple of sort of broad questions. So first of all, could you kind of give us a definition of what economic espionage is and why you felt it was important to write about this now? Yeah. So I would distinguish economic espionage from strategic or military espionage. Yeah. So I think what most people are probably familiar with is espionage campaigns spying on a foreign government or a foreign uh military in order mm. to gain insights into the political machinations or the military maneuvers of a, of a foreign country. Yeah. Economic espionage, by contrast, is, as it would suggest, is, is focused on economic secrets. Um, how is this country uh, exploiting its resources or, or um, uh, managing its economy in a way that will help it compete with rival countries? Um, because yeah, I would I would argue that you know obviously economic performance is as important to a country's survival and thriving in the world as military or or political. And um, so when it when it comes to economic espionage, that's also when you start getting more into the realm of private business companies. Mm-hmm. You know, especially in a place like the United States and Europe, um, private companies are the one that are that are really driving economic performance. And so uh, this is where espionage, uh, particularly state-backed espionage, yeah. starts getting into the into the territory of private companies and individuals. Yeah. And maybe a silly question, but also possibly an important one. Why should the average person care about economic espionage? How does it affect us? Yeah, I, I think if I were going to bring it down to, uh, you know, really on the individual level, um, I think I think people's livelihoods depend on this. Um if you're working for a company or in an industry or a sector that is um, being targeted by espionage, I, th- I think you know your your livelihood is at risk. Um, mm-hmm. if, if another mm-hmm. company or another country can can outperform your own company, then you know that's obviously something you need to be concerned about. On the larger picture, I think economic espionage is important because it ultimately helps countries maneuver. In, in, in the in the modern world yeah and as we kind of track the rise and fall of, of various countries um, over time economic espionage is is at the core of this and so just you know by by knowing being having situational awareness of your world and and who's doing what um, I think it's important to watch for economic espionage yeah and and I think I remember from your report there was something like uh, 320 billion in losses in the year of 2018 based just on Chinese economic espionage activities against the United States I mean that's a it's a lot of money being lost to the American economy yeah I always like to caveat those numbers those are those are numbers put together by u.s government agencies mm-hmm. i think there's always kind of a you know they're, they're taking the most liberal definition of that <laughs> but yes i mean we are talking about billions hundreds of billions of dollars mm-hmm. and mostly i think lost opportunity markets are denied uh because other companies are stealing secrets and using them to, to cut into market share yeah and that's a lot of money away from the economy yeah yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that. So, um, so let's take a look at the history of economic espionage. In your report, you look at China and Europe, and then the United States and the United Kingdom. So, can you talk to us about why China was a target of economic espionage in the past? Yeah. So, China. I think it's really important to remember, up until the early 19th century, really was um, probably you know if not the one of the most economically di- dynamic countries in the world you know so many things uh come from from china including and this i mentioned this in the report 
um, tea was was originally you know comes from China. Silk was uh, comes from China. Porcelain, things that we kind of take for granted and and don't seem yeah. it doesn't seem that important today. But if you go back several hundred years ago, or in the case of silk, mm. you're looking back to like sixth century of the of the common era. Silk was a was a huge product, uh, and, and everyone wanted to get their hands on it. And and the Chinese basically had the monopoly on it. You know, it wasn't just you're you're basically looking at, at you know Europe and pre Middle Ages. Basically, your options for for cloth were um, were wool, you know, mm-hmm. a very early scratchy form of wool, animal skins or leather, and, and then some some kind of primitive uh, linens. And so, silk offered all sorts of different different options um, for 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 just clothing yourself, or for um, for decorations, or for uh, even for military purposes, because mm-hmm. silk was just such a strong. It was a it was a much stronger material than, than anything else on that was available at the time. And there was actually, there were some weaves of silk that um, could contain a spearhead. If it, if, you know, if someone were shot by an arrow or a spear, the silk could actually contain the spear. And so it made removal easier. It reduced the likelihood of infection. It certainly wasn't armor, but it was militarily important. And so that's where we kind of, we get over the acquisition of the ability to make silk. Sericulture Mm. was hugely important then. And, you know, the story of how, uh, silk came from China across Central Asia and eventually made its way to Europe. I think that the, one of the, the common narratives out there is that you know a few monks uh, showed up with some silkworm larva and, and gave it to Justinian I of the Byzantine Empire, and then you know the European sericulture industry was made. It's a lot more complicated than that. It was a much mm, more gradual mm. process. It migrated, but but yeah, it, that that's that's kind of one of the early cases of uh, industrial espionage was the acquisition of, of sericulture, of silk technology, yeah. uh, about 1,400 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And you made an interesting point in your report about how it's, it's very easy to kind of steal, you know, the technique of making silk, but unless you have, like, the industry and the skilled workers to kind of back that information up, it makes it very hard to kind of replicate silk. Yes, and I, I think, thank you thank you for bringing that up. That That's a... Uh, I think one of the, the main themes that, that I saw through 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 you know, looking at the history of of industrial espionage is that um, you know there's this kind of triangle uh, the intelligence triangle that we talk about when it comes to espionage, mm-hmm. which is intent, interest, and capability. And I think a lot of people focus on the capability as far as the tradecraft of espionage, recruiting sources, acting undercover, um, clandestine communications, all these kind of things, the, the technical nitty-gritty of, of, of espionage, which are fascinating and, and a study in their own right. What I think is really interesting to look at too is what do then what do countries do with that? So you have the ability to go get information from abroad, from a, a rival power, but can you exploit it? And um, in several, in the other many cases in history where you see examples of excellent technical capability of of getting secrets but then ultimately the 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 country that was stealing those secrets can't exploit them hmm. and um and yeah so so sericulture is a great example of that because you know it's not just it's a very complicated process of having the right kind of tree having the right kind of silkworm um the 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 skilled labor of knowing how to raise the silkworm and 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 extract the co- uh, the cocoon and 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 spin out the the silk threads it's a very complicated process that you know 
you know, if, if you if you were just handed a few uh, silkworm larvae, you know, that's that's clearly not enough. And so, yeah, a lot of things had to be in place. The, the Byzantines needed lots of skilled labor, access to the mulberry tree. So many things had to be in place for them to stand up their own uh, silk production, uh, not just you know, the insect sample. One thing that's also in that early section about China was Wedgwood porcelain. I found that <laughs> really quite funny. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Because I found that really funny. So yeah, as an example of uh, of countries, you know, maybe having good capability uh, and taking the secrets, but not in exploiting them. Mm. And, um, and yeah, as I'm, I'm sure uh, as, 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 a, as someone from, from Great Britain, you'll probably appreciate France's failure on this part. But France actually dispatched a, uh, a Franciscan friar out to China, basically to study the ways of, of, of porcelain making. So once again, China was, was basically, they had the monopoly on, on porcelain back in the 18th century. The French said, hey, if we, um, if we can figure out how to do this, we, can, you know, we, can, we don't have to buy from, from the Chinese. We can, we can make it ourselves. So um, this, uh, this friar went out. He spent 20 years in China, basically pretty much literally writing the book on, on how to make porcelain, studied the ins and outs, the process, um, noted how it was a very much a, an industrial process. There were lots of steps to it, many people involved. And you know, he sent his notes back. Um, they basically sat on the shelf. Um, France was not able to do anything with it. But then about 50 years later, uh, as mid 19th century at this point, Josiah Wedgwood, who had already been working in, in, in pottery and, and kind of mm. dishware in, in England, um, he got his hands on this information and was able to exploit it and able to, to vastly increase the, the quality of his products based on this information that was collected by, you know, essentially a French spy. So, uh, so yeah, I think that's a great example of, you know, not just having the capability to, to get the secrets, but to to exploit them and there's actually there's a great uh historian robert finlay wrote about this and and he makes the point that i think is really interesting is that maybe one of the reasons why england you know an englishman was able to exploit it rather than the frenchman was simply because england was further along in the industrial revolution than france was at that point and it was it was assembly line process basically Mm -hmm. and England was kind of already moving that direction. They already had uh, that was they were having they were building factories. They were they were industrializing faster than France, and so England was just in a better position to exploit it than than France was. And so I think that's um, you know that's that's a lesson that comes up over and over again, uh, looking at the history of economic espionage, and one that's definitely important to remember um, when it comes to you know hearing reports about secrets being stolen. Obviously, that's concerning. But then we need to look at, okay, what can they do with that? What's the, mm. what's the ultimate end game mm. here? Mm. Can you talk to us a little bit about the operations against Great Britain? <laughs> because there were some really interesting stories in that. Yeah. So you know, I, I kind of lay out three waves of industrial espionage. Mm. And they really track pretty closely with just technology transfer in general. Um, mm. and, and so... You know, China was was a was a major target for for hundreds of years. But then, as Great Britain industrialized and basically became the the manufacturing center of the world by the by the nineteenth century, mm. they became the target. And Europeans, uh, continental Europeans, Americans, 
everyone was going to Great Britain basically to learn from from the British on on, mm. on industrializations. And you know, there there are accounts of of Germans of um, of Belgians, of Dutch, you know, everyone was going over there and, you know, basically stealing secrets. The British put some pretty draconian limitations, you know, basically saying if, if you work in a, in a factory, if you are, if you are, if you have a, a specific trade that yeah. we deem sensitive, you know, you basically can't leave the country. Uh, and so, um, I think the United States though, was in a very unique position because, uh, you know, the United States wasn't, they wanted to industrialize just like anyone else um, for economic gain. But the United States also had obviously a, a much more complicated relationship with Great Britain at the time, at the turn of the, um, you know, going from the 18th into the 19th century. The U.S. had just gained political independence from Great Britain, but was still, they were still very much economically dependent. Mm-hmm. And basically mm-hmm. the way it worked was... Um, the U.S. was a was a, a source of raw materials, cotton being being one of the big ones. They would send cotton, raw cotton, basically over to Great Britain, where it's processed, uh, spun into cloth, and then the cloth was sent back to the U.S. So, you know, the U.S. was saw this as a missed opportunity, and so uh, the U.S. decided that you know they needed to to basically figure out how to process their own raw materials. And so there was a, a, a pretty concerted, organized effort to that was backed by President Jefferson, uh, mm. Alexander Hamilton, who was the, the first Secretary of the Treasury of the United States. There was high-level support for basically stealing secrets from the British in order to strengthen the U.S. textile industry, basically to, to gain economic independence from, from Great Britain as well as political. Which was vital to America's kind of survival really, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was, um, you know, again, I think, I think these cases are, are most interesting mm. when it, when it is, when it does come down to survival. And, and I think, you know, looking back at, at, at other examples like, like silk or porcelain, it's hard to, it's hard to argue that those were vital to European survival. They certainly helped. Mm. Um, but, you know, when you get into cases like, yeah, like the U.S. textile industry, I mean, that's that's, you know, there's a there's a there's a marriage there of, of strategic and economic interests. And, and actually, so this is, if we're if we can still stay in the past, I think another really fascinating I didn't actually get to talk about this one as much in my article just because of space. But the story of the British East India Company and tea, mm. I think this is this is fascinating because it it really links economic espionage with. Geo, geopolitics of the 19th century. So early 19th century, the British had this great system going where they basically, they were growing poppies or harvesting opium from their, from, from South Asia, yeah. sending it to China. And then they get tea in exchange for that opium. So actually no money actually changed hands. This was like a kind of an enclosed system, but then British merchants would, would be mm. able to sell tea for uh, was, the, the, today's in today's dollars, the equivalent of like a thousand dollars a pound. Um, yeah. So they were making, they were they were doing well for themselves uh, in this tea business. So the Chinese are, are upset about this because you know their population is being um, basically exposed to, to high levels of opium. Uh, as we all know, it's it's generally not good for productivity and and yeah. you know moral makeup of a society. So the Chinese started pushing back. You had a series of opium wars um, where the British were basically trying to force the Chinese to 
to, to continue with this trade. And so in the midst of these opium wars where, where everything is kind of in jeopardy, the British Horticultural Society sends out a Scottish botanist named Robert Fortune out to the hills of China. He's disguised as a, as a, as a Chinese tea merchant, and he collects thousands of samples of the, the specific variety of tea mm-hmm. um, that the, the British are consuming. And he actually goes on several trips. He's extremely successful. He's able to, to basically provide not just botan- not just samples of the plants, but also he recruits workers. He gets mm. implements. Again, going back to sericulture, you know, it's not just about the, um, the product. It's not just about one element. You have to, it's the whole industry, right? It's, it's the people who are involved, the tools, the knowledge. Um, and he, he brings this back to, uh, back to Britain. The British East India Company is able to was already in the process of trying to um, basically re- use its its interests in India and South Asia to cultivate tea and basically switch the British population from um, drinking Chinese to Indian tea with partial success. But now that they had the actual plants, they had basically they, they had the whole operation handed to them. They were able to incorporate those those Chinese tea plants in India. And it, it, it went a great, great length in, in solving this whole dilemma with China, with the opium wars, and that they were able to, to basically create an alternative for, for their tea demand. And so, you know, I think that's just, it's, it's also a fascinating example and not just brilliant tradecraft that this botanist was able to go over and, and collect all these samples, but then excellent execution, you know, the ability to take these secrets and, and really maximize the the profits and 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 the gains from those secrets um by standing up an entire tea industry um outside of china yeah fantastic thank you for sharing that that's a really interesting one yeah something it really uh, <laughs> paints an interesting picture imagining this botanist in china is quite <laughs> I, i've had a lot of conversations with people talking about what they were up to you know because mm. you're, you're talking about spending years if not decades and you know all the mistresses and all the all the things, the, all the side stories that you know that don't really make it out, but you know, you know, are happening. Um, it'd be great to write a, you know, <laughs> it'd be fascinating to think of like nineteenth-century British Chinese espionage and like all the other stuff that goes on, not beyond just the yeah stealing of secrets. Yeah, indeed, indeed, it's definitely a show in that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you very much for talking about the past. That we'll move into the the present part present part past can you talk to us a bit about the the soviet union and russia's use of economic espionage so as we move into the 20th century you know just just a quick segue here from the past Mm. i think another important lesson to remember is that despite the fact that that china lost its monopoly on on silk and porcelain and um and tea and the fact that the uk lost or yeah, they lost the monopoly on 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 textiles and, and kind of industrial manufacturing. You know, China maintained global market dominance in those products mm-hmm. up until mm-hmm. today. They're still one of the leading producers of um, FT and silk and porcelain mm-hmm. to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, the United Kingdom maintained its its advantages in, in textiles for for a good hundred years. Um, up until World War One, really. Mm. So, so despite the fact that there was there was systematic espionage going on, these countries, you know, there were lost opportunities, probably in the millions or if not billions of dollars, but they they did fine. 
they, they were okay. So as we get into the 20th century, though, that's when the United States really starts to come on the scene and, and you know, is, is kind of the, um, certainly by the end of World War II, is, is the global economic leader, at least. The Soviet Union, I think it's important to remember, you know, they were, was born out of the revolution in the 1920s. Um, and they, I think there's, there's another argument to be made there that the Soviet Union was engaging in economic espionage for its very survival because this is a very, you know, Imperial Russia before the Soviet Union was, was still pretty agrarian. They were, they were definitely kind of at the bottom of the pile when it come to, when it came to industrialized countries in Europe, they had a lot of catching up to do basically if they were going to compete with, with Western Europe and the United States. And so you see in the 1920s, 1930s, uh, the Soviet Union, you know, I think a, a famous example is they, they stood up this um, kind of commercial interest office in New York, the um, Amtor Group. And, and you know, it, it, the cover was that it was basically pursuing commercial interest in the United States. It was kind of their commercial outpost. They had one in London. It had a different name, but the same sort of thing. Yeah. That would make a lot of sense. I, I haven't looked into that one, but that would be interesting to look into. And I know, yeah, I, I don't know the specifics about the London one, but I know, yeah, in New York, one of the the case studies there is that you know they were able to get blueprints for a four-design tractor, send them back to the Soviet Union. They were unable to make it, even though they, they basically they had the designs, they had the secrets, but they just didn't have the industrial base built up yeah. to produce yeah. these tractors, at least not efficiently. And so... The Soviet Union ended up actually um, hiring this this uh, industrial designer, industrial architect from Detroit to to go mm. over and and basically build the factory for them. There was a kind of a coincidence or a, a benefit of timing here in that they hired this industrial designer to go over. It was around his late twenties, early thirties, Great Depression. He was looking for work, so you know he I think probably similar to a lot of companies today doing business with China, you know kind of had to um, swallow a hard pill there and, and, and knowing that, you know, going over to work for the Soviet Union was probably probably bad for long-term business prospects. But at the time, you know, you, you take what work you can get during a Great Depression. So hmm. so he goes over, builds them a factory. Sure enough, they end his contract after the first factory and and they basically took his model and then, and then built off of that to... Uh, this is kind of getting into, you know, how do you define industrial espionage? They were certainly, they were certainly take. They, you know, he knew what he was giving over to them, but it was it was forced technological transfer at the very least. Mm. And uh, and this, yeah, this led to there was a uh, great a, a great article on that arguing that that transfer of uh, of the actual factory designs mm. um, kind of sparked the. Soviet industrial manufacturing base, and that it, it wasn't just tractors that they used that then to make vehicles and trucks and tanks that they were mm. then able to use to to kind of stand the ground in, in World War II. Yeah, it helped build up their military. Yeah, right. So, so yeah, this, this was they they you know they saw this as existential. Um, mm. This wasn't just mm. about making a a cheaper tractor. This was about ultimately being able to to beat the Nazis. And obviously build up their forces for the, the Cold War as well after that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, and that yeah. too. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned the, is it the Tupolev TU-144, the kind of yeah. copy of the Concorde. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one, the the, the Tupolev uh, TU-144, it was, I don't think there was any ever actual clear evidence that, that the Soviets were stealing mm. uh, blueprints from the, the Concorde, but 
it was it was definitely an imitation, and I, I think every the consensus seems to be that, that there was there was something going on. But I, I included that too because there's another great example of just because you can replicate that technology doesn't mean that you're going to be successful. Mm. Because with the the, the it was an Anglo French cooperation uh, to build the Concorde, they were building it with the intent of it having market success. You know, they were looking at a, you know, by the, this is the 1960s, 1970s, you had a really strong economic relationship over the Northern Atlantic between the United States or North America and Europe. There was a large demand for going back and forth between the financial capitals of North America and Europe. And so they, they, they built the Concord, they went to market, it was successful for a good 30 I guess about, it was 30, about 30 years, years yeah, wasn't before it? Yeah, before yeah. It's finally retired. The Soviets built a, a plane. It was actually faster than the Concorde um, and, and in some ways technologically superior to the Concorde, mm. but they didn't have the market. <laughs> I mean, this is the Soviet Union. You don't have, you don't have jet setting executives flying around making business deals and, and impressing clients. You know, things are, are very centrally <laughs> Uh, yeah. centrally, it's a, it's a central plant economy. You know, certainly it would help to have a, a, a you know a supersonic jet to fly from from Moscow to Vladivostok, but mm. you know, there's, there's just not the demand. No, with a big running cost, and yeah, 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 these expensive. These these tickets are really expensive, and so you know, it flew a few dozen um, passenger flights, and then was was finally retired. So, yeah, just just an example of how. Just because you can get the trade tickets, just because you can replicate the technology doesn't mean that you can replicate the market demand to to take advantage of that technology. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how similar it was to Concorde, because I was thinking of another jet as well. The Americans had a jet called the XB-70, and the Russians made something called the Sukhoi T-4. Mm. I had to Google it while you were chatting. And they look exactly the same. It's amazing. Yeah. I think there's, there's some examples. Yeah. The Chinese, the new Chinese fighter jets. There's, yeah. there's a tendency there. Yeah. And... I think there's there's certainly imitation going on, um, mm, at the very mm, least. Mm, and a bit of backwards engineering. Because he had it with a space shuttle as well, I think, didn't they? The, the, the Buran, yeah, yeah the, the space yeah. shuttle, which I don't think actually ever flew. I don't um, believe so. They no. made it, but then never actually flew it. So, But I think that was that was more, that was coming around like the late 80s. And I think I think it was more just the fact that the Soviet Union collapsing and yeah. sending a shuttle to orbit was just not. Yeah. Yeah. No, in the middle of their war in Afghanistan as well, weren't they? So yeah. it's like, it wasn't a huge priority. Yeah. 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 Well, when the, um, I mean, you, you know, Soviet, or oh, sorry, Russian um, espionage is as big today as it was during the Cold War. And there are some examples you've mentioned about um, some recent cases involving Yahoo, GE, Boeing, and even Tesla. And one thing that also popped to my mind, there was, um, and I think it's closed now, but there was a Russian, it was an embassy or Russian facility near Silicon Valley in San Francisco as well, isn't there? Yeah, so, so I think it's really interesting. The Russians have kind of used a similar... Um, a similar model to, to mTorg, right? Mm. So, so in Silicon Valley, you had uh, Rusnano, which was mm. this venture capitalist company out out in Silicon Valley. There were FBI put out warnings, basically saying, "Hey, you know, they are they're basically looking to to take U.S. technology." Yeah, yeah. Similar to mTorg, right? And and in twenty fifteen, I think with Rusnano, there was no actual espionage cases linked directly back to Rusnano, which. Mm. Could you know? Could just be a testament to to 
good tradecraft on the part of the Russians. But there was one, there was another one, a Russian bank financial mm. interests mm. Mm. office set up in New York. And yeah, one of their one of their employees, I mean, it was it was basically it was it was Russian intelligence using the cover of, you know, having a financial office in, in New York. And they were, you know, caught stealing secrets, um, trading trading secrets from from US companies. And that was back in twenty fifteen. So yeah. so yeah, I think it's really fascinating to see those that 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 parallel, right? That you know, the the Russians had their um or Amtorg back in the nineteen twenties. And here we are, 2015, where they're using a very similar model to uh, you basically set up this kind of commercial financial interest office in New York, and they're using it as cover yeah. for for espionage. And as you point out, I mean, this isn't—it's not just New York; it's it, it's it's in London. It's probably in, in pretty much any major financial capital. Um, yeah, they're going to be yeah. present. Um, you your report showed a brilliant little small chart that kind of outlines the sectors of priority for both the Russians and the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk to us a little bit about it? Because obviously we can't see the chart. Yeah, so this is the basically identifying priorities of of Russian and Chinese intelligence. Um, we actually we made this originally in 2019. We've been updating mm. it, but it's it's amazing how uh, especially countries like China and Russia are pretty transparent about what their their economic development goals are. And and, mm. and and China has put out, you know, five-year plans and and you know yeah. they're they're made in China 2025 initiative where they they basically say straight out this is what we want to become mm. dominant or at least self-sufficient in later we want to be dominant in. And mm. you know these are things semiconductors are huge so you know the the design and, and manufacturing of microchips, microprocessors, memory, all the mm. all the things that you mm. need basically to to make mm. the um, you know the processing power of a computer. Um, uh, you've got artificial intelligence. Is you know China has has invested tremendously in in developing their artificial intelligence capabilities in that sector. Maritime equipment, uh, and you know this links back to obviously there's a lot of competition between China. And the U.S. and its rivals in, in Southeast Asia, whether it's Taiwan or the Philippines or Vietnam, so having that maritime advantage, um, you know, that's that's I think that's a, that's a place where economic and military intelligence kind of converges because that's that's dual use. Um, and then you know, just old-fashioned agriculture. You know, <laughs> this this is still you, you still have uh, there are several cases of of kind of like your, your Scottish Robert Fortune out, you know, collecting samples out in the, in the fields. There have been several examples of, of Chinese scientists and researchers basically out, essentially out in the, in the cornfields in the United States, mm. collecting samples, mm. basically trying to, to improve um, bioengineering and, um, you know, figuring out how to, to, because some of these, some of these seeds, some of these, these foods that are, that are bioengineered, um, I mean, they're, they're they're incredibly expensive and incredibly protected information. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, trying to basically figure out how how the Chinese can can replicate that. Yeah, and you kind of identify China as the kind of the clear front runner of twenty first century economic espionage efforts in your report. Yeah, and, and you know, Russia is is obviously highly <clears throat> active in, in economic espionage, but the reason why I, I think I, I would I would put I would give China the advantage. Is that again? You know, both China and Russia are, are are very capable when it comes to stealing secrets. I would give China the edge when it comes to exploiting those secrets. 
they they have you know they're investing billions of dollars in in building up these industries. They have a very robust recruiting uh, method or, or recruiting program where they're not only getting the the trade secrets, but they're also recruiting the experts to come over to China and and implement those secrets. Russia is is certainly able to get the secrets. It, I don't think it's as attractive a place to go work. There are there aren't the same opportunities there as you have in a place like Shanghai or, or Beijing or Guangzhou. So I think China just has 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 the advantage when it comes to um, making the most out of the secrets that it steals. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. So um, the US is not the only target of uh, Chinese government economic sort of espionage operations. So um, what measures can governments take to combat these operations? What challenges do they face? And as China is a huge trading partner for the US and Europe, draconian measures could disrupt that so is espionage just the cost of doing business with china do you think <sighs> yeah that's that's the that's the big question um that i think a lot mm. of executives are, are grappling with so first you know i think the, the fascinating part about economic espionage is that certainly governments are playing a role um counterintelligence programs are wrapping ramping up um you know government agencies are trying to to find and prevent people from from stealing secrets but it's also, I, I think it's really important that companies have their own counterintelligence programs, that they, that they are also engaged in, in looking for this. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, adopting that companies need to adopt their own draconian strategies. Um, it can be pretty simple. I mean, thinking about simply, you know, one of the first steps is just figuring out, okay, what are your trade secrets as a company and, and labeling those, classifying those as, as secret, as protected managing access to those documents, you know, making sure that only authorized people have the, have the ability to access it. And, and also monitoring, you know, if someone is, I think there's some great examples like in, in driverless car technology where you had someone who was working on, you know, sensors, maybe they were working on a sensor package. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, all of a sudden they download 10,000 files on, I don't know, like, uh, Inter interoperability and, and, and communicating between devices within the car. So when you have kind of unusual activity like that, where, where, where someone is, is kind of going outside their going outside their lane, that's a good opportunity to set, take them aside and just talk to them. You know, it might there might be a perfectly good reason they were doing that, um, but if there's not, then that then, you know you have to you need to pursue that further and, and investigate and. Um, I think in a lot of these cases, when it comes to industrial espionage, the tradecraft isn't necessarily that good. Um, mm. It's easy, relatively easy to catch. There's just so much of it. And, and I think especially at companies are, um, you know, they, I, I get it. They want to give employees latitude to, to be independent and do their own thing. Um, mm. Especially, mm. you know, you think about places like, like Apple or Google, that's kind of their, their pride. Um, and so really, it, it really gets to, you know, figuring out as a company, how do you, you know, maintain that, that kind of openness and um, sense of exploration while also protecting your own trade secrets that are worth billions of dollars uh, now and in the future. So um, I, I think, yeah, I think there are ways to manage it without, you know, going back to the, <laughs> the, the, 18th century Britain, you know, not allowing uh, craftsmen to, to leave the country. I, you know, I don't think we can get away with that today. Uh, but, but just having a smarter approach to it. First of all, being aware, educating your employees about it, letting them know what they can do and be aware of and, 
and I think encourage, you know, reporting of suspicious activity when it does come up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on an individual level, is there anything um, people can do personally to be more aware of, of being, you know, of potentially being a target themselves? Uh, yes, yes. And that's maybe jumping the gun a little bit. But when you get into the looking at the future, well, no, I mean, it's the present. It's not just the future. Cyber espionage is just is, is, is a game changer, right? That, um, you know, we're looking at, I think, a great example. You know, it, it took a Franciscan monk 20 years to steal um, the information on, on making porcelain. That can be stolen in a matter of seconds. And you can get a lot more of it. And in, in better quality. I mean, you, you, you steal gigabytes worth of information in a matter of seconds now with, with cyber espionage yeah, without yeah. ever leaving your country. You know, you don't have to assume all the risks that, that, that previous spies had. So when it comes to cyber espionage, yes, I think that is that does kind of fall on all of us to have to good digital hygiene, basically, you know, making sure that um, that your computers are, are safe and whether that means um, you know, making sure you're, the software you're using is updated, making sure that the software you're loading on your computer is required in the first place. You know, I, not mm, having mm. excessive programs and, and, and ways for bad guys to get in, basically. You know, not recycling passwords, making sure that when people reach out to you that you confirm their identity and that, you know, make sure you're not talking to someone who's trying to exploit you. This really is, it really does come on to all of us because, you know, as we've said before, it's it's the weakest link, you know, that, that if... <laughs> 99% of your employees are doing everything they need to, 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 to keep their company safe when it comes to cyber intrusions. All it takes is, is, is one employee um, making a mistake and, and they're in. And so yeah. it's daunting and, and, and mm-hmm. overwhelming at point at times to think about that, but really just, you know, thinking about increasing the threshold, making it harder for, for hostile actors to, to get into your company is is an important thing to think about is there another you know with traveling as well because i've seen many fbi videos about like warning american students or business people to be careful when they go to china as mm, one place yeah. there's there's a particular i can't remember the name of the video now but there's a particular video about a guy who mistakenly ends up working he's a student who ends up working for a chinese newspaper which is somehow a front for chinese intelligence and somehow gives away state secrets are there things people can be careful about when they're going abroad as well <sighs> yeah and I say this as someone who, you know, I'm fascinated by China. I, I myself mm. picked up and, and, and moved there and, and traveled around for several months. So, you know, I think people absolutely should. People should go to China. It's it's a important place to to see and to understand. Mm. Mm. I can also say, yeah, when I was there, I was definitely approached by intelligence. And it's 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 scary how smooth it is. Was it overt or was it more covert the way you approached? If you don't mind me asking. It was so I was going to I was in Beijing. Um I just mm. been accepted to a graduate program, a graduate school program. Mm. I was there happened to be a kind of an alumni event going on in Beijing. I was going to the it was in a hotel. I was going on my way into the hotel and this woman just kind of walked up next to me and started talking to me in a very familiar way. It, and in a way that made me assume that she was also going to this alumni event. And as we were going in the door, she was, she, she offered, you know, why don't we just go get some coffee instead? And I thought, wait a second. Yeah. Like whenever, whenever <laughs> yeah. someone's trying to change your action, whenever someone's trying to change the direction you're going in or, or, or um, do something that you didn't intend to do, that's when you're, mm. you know, that's when you're you need to be alert. And I realized, yeah, this, this woman was, um, had nothing to do with the event that I was going to. And, uh, 
for some reason or another was, was you know, approaching me. Um, it, I don't know why, but, you know, I, I, it, that's, that's a similar tactic that a state-backed um, intelligence agency would use. Um, just mm. kind of assuming that level of familiarity and, and making it seem very natural. Um, and so that's why, yeah, you can't necessarily go off of, of social cues like that, but you, you do, you can go off of, you know, being aware of, of someone trying to, to change your behavior or make you do something that you weren't planning to do. Yeah. That's a really interesting point that that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. That's really interesting. Oh, yeah. Before we move on from the present, is there anything else that's relevant to you in that sphere or should we move on to the future? One, one more point I would make is that, um, this is, this is another graph that I had included in the, in the report is that mm. the United States has, has largely defined economic espionage through the Economic Espionage Act of 1996. And that's kind of laid out yeah. basically you know, yeah. in law, what, what economic espionage is. If you look at the history of, of cases going back to 1996, uh, the majority of the cases are actually other U.S. companies. And, and so I, I think that's, that's, it's important to realize that you know, this isn't just China and Russia. It's not just this high, you know, strategic kind of economic development espionage. This is something that companies do too on a regular basis. That companies steal information from each other, and um, and, and and I think that you know, one thing that kind of one of the criticisms of the United States um, focus on economic espionage is, is that people say that it's basically racist. That it's just trying to that it's targeting Chinese people. And um, I think it's important to remember that, that economic espionage is by no means unique to China. Um, they are extremely active in it right now, but uh, it, can be, it can be anyone. And it, 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 it transcends race and national background, ethnicity. And, and even when it comes to Chinese-backed espionage, you know, China doesn't always use Chinese nationals. Um, there, there are examples of, of, of Europeans, of Americans. Um, getting recruited and, and, and taking this information. So, uh, I mean, not that just, just a reminder that, you know, racial profiling doesn't, doesn't help. in in this case, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. So, so what does the future hold for economic espionage? I think that, you know, the future, as, as I, as I mentioned earlier is, is very obviously cyber espionage. Mm. I mean, there's always going to be a place for recruiting sources, recruiting people within a company or, or, you know, in a, in a position of knowledge. So that kind of physical espionage will always will always be present. But cyber espionage just, just offers so many opportunities. It's, it's so much lower risk. You can get so much information so much faster. So, mm-hmm. the, so that is, it's the present and it, it, is, it is the future too. And what we, what we try to do in our report is basically lay out, you know, looking at the history of, of espionage as the present, what are some, 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 who are some actors that we could anticipate uh, becoming more aggressive collectors of economic espionage in the future. And so, you know, this is looking at, at countries that some of the characteristics are basically, you know, looking at the, the makeup of the government. Is it a centralized government where they have a lot of power, a lot of control, where they rely heavily on, on um, intelligence agencies and security agencies to, to govern? Or do those countries have an economic development imperative? So similar to the Soviet Union mm-hmm. in the early 20th century, China now, um, you know, which, what countries really need to develop economically in order to survive. You know, those are the countries that are going to pose a threat. Um, Political rivalry is another important factor. Obviously, allies spy on each other. That's, that's been documented over and over again. But countries that are, that are 
um, political rivals are, are more likely to spy on each other. And then, and then finally, intelligence intent and capability. You know, what if a country already has a, a, a proven track record of conducting espionage when it comes to military or strategic matters? Um, yeah. it's, it's a matter of choice if they want to go over yeah. after economic secrets too. So, so basically, so based on those those categories, we identified a few countries that you know we think pose a a, a threat in the future. Some of which already pose a threat, mm. um, but those are mm. Iran, Vietnam, and North Korea. Yeah. These are all countries that have demonstrated that they uh, can spy on other countries. They're they're certainly you know they don't stand to to lose a lot of friends. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. At least when it comes to Iran and North Korea, you know, they, they've already alienated a lot of countries, so, so they don't stand to lose any friends by spying on people. I think Vietnam is the, the interesting one here where, you know, Vietnam is, is, is trying to kind of make a, a place for itself in the world. So it is interesting to me mm-hmm. that they have been fairly aggressive in, in espionage in recent years. They, they've gone after BMW, Hyundai and Toyota. I didn't realize how close Vietnam and North Korea were. I was watching a documentary recently about the assassination of um, King Jamil, the, his brother, and um, and about how North Korea and Vietnam seem to have quite close relations. I was I was quite surprised by that. So yeah, I mean, you you have the whole kind of socialist connection there. Mm. Vietnam is all yeah, they've always kind of harbored North Korea. It's one of the few countries that where North Korea has a has an embassy, and they've got these kind of weird North Korean restaurants there that, that mm. act as, as ways for, to funnel money back to, to North Korea. But yeah, there, there is a, I think Vietnam wouldn't necessarily advertise it, but, but there is, there is something there mm. Um, mm. more, more so than with other countries. Yeah. I mean, their embassy is pretty big there from what I saw, because the one in England is like a small house, whilst the one in uh, Vietnam was like a huge, you know, maybe a six story building at least um, from wow. the documentary. I saw. Okay, yeah. I've not personally been there, but it's like, it looked pretty big <laughs> with big aerials on top too. It's always a giveaway. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, there's something going, I, I haven't, I haven't, uh, I'll have to look at that, check that documentary out. Mm. That would be interesting. Yeah, it's called assassination. I saw it on Amazon prime. It's really interesting. So this is, so this is the assassination. Yeah. That actually had happened in mm. Kuala Lumpur. Right. But they, they were using That's Vietnam it. Yeah. as kind of a conduit. I believe it was one of the ladies who was, kind of caught up and it was vietnamese that's, right. that's where yeah. it could have came into play in the documentary it was really interesting okay so sorry slight sidetrack there but <laughs> but you're saying so vietnam's been targeting certain western sort of brands like bmw and things like that you were saying yeah so, so um end of 2019 bmw accused vietnam of trying to infiltrate their networks bmw claimed mm. that they were able to stop it but uh, you know shortly after hyundai and, and toyota came out and said that they had seen similar activity and um it was very suspicious timing because it was this it was around the same time that this this vietnam company vin group was standing up its own car making mm. section VinFast. so there were there was definitely some some reason there you know there's a reason for yeah. um vietnam to be spying on these car companies because you know they were they were they were stepping into the fray. They were they were going to try to start making cars themselves. And so, as, as Vietnam, you know, Vietnam is in an in interesting position because they're trying to kind of take away some of that the, the low end manufacturing that, that China has has attracted. And so, they're also playing a game of catch up. And yeah. and you could argue that they, you know, they 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 their they, their survival depends on it because if they can't compete with China, then um, you know they're at risk of it being kind of. Uh, 
dominated by China and, and those they're, they're mm, two mm. historic rivals. So, so yeah, I think with Vietnam, there's a lot of kind of nationalist um, pride there as far as kind of being economically independent from China, as well as just a, a requirement. They have, they have to, they have to um, mm. advance in order to, to stay independent. Yeah. One random left field question, if I may, mm. do you think climate change will bring in new priorities that might come into play for economic espionage? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, basically, Anything that promotes new technology is, is going to be a, a venue for, for espionage. So there's a great example of Chinese company. I think, I think they, they were doing wind turbines and they, they had a, a multi-million dollar contract with this company that was providing a certain part. They basically recruited a company. Uh, they, they recruited an employee of that company for a fraction of the cost, got all the, all the information they needed into the contract and then, you know, they could do it in house. So there's already examples of, of China targeting kind of alternative energy companies. And so the more, the more important alternative energy becomes the more important other technologies and dealing with climate change. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's going to drive espionage for sure. Yeah. And the Middle East, I mean, with the decline of oil, um, I foresee, you know, some countries could really, you know, become bankrupt effectively. Their economy is completely based on oil and stuff. That's quite desperate. So I, I didn't include it on the list for future, but I think, yeah, countries like Saudi Arabia, United mm. Emirates, mm. these are countries that, that have a, a pretty centralized control, you know, government control. Um, they have an established back history in, in espionage and kind of relying on their intelligence services. And, and yeah, to your point, I mean, their, their, their future kind of depends on them diversifying. They're already doing it now, but yeah. they need to really be aggressive in diversifying away from energy and, and, and figuring out how they're going to survive mm. if, if oil keeps its, its low price or if it you know, kind of goes out of style. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ben, thank you so much today. Where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? So we, um, I'm, I'm published on uh, stratfor.com is, is a great place to go check out mine and, and my colleagues' work. Yeah, that would, that would be the place to go. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. All right. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.